The History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening and welcome to The History Show on RTE Radio 1. On this week's programme... There was strong faith as a young Catholic, but he had faith in what he was doing and that that was going to propel the movement forwards. 100 years on, we'll discuss the life, death and legacy of Kevin Barry. We'll hear from two of Barry's relatives who have published new biographies of their rebel ancestor. Also... It was the ideal situation to try out different designs and ideas. It was state-of-the-art at the time and the houses themselves were fantastic. The first housing scheme in a newly independent Ireland. The history of the Tenters in Dublin 8, whose residents are preparing to mark its centenary. 100 years ago today, Kevin Barry was executed in Mountjoy Prison. The young medical student and IRA volunteer was sentenced to hang for his role in an ambush that resulted in the deaths of three British soldiers. In song and story, he's forever the lad of 18 summers and stands today as one of Ireland's most famous martyrs. Tonight we'll hear about two new publications which investigate his life and the mythology surrounding him. To begin this evening, Colm Flynn spoke to Shifra O'Donovan, Barry's grandniece and the author of the book Yours Till Hell Freezes, a memoir of Kevin Barry. On the 20th of September 1920, Kevin Barry started his day by going to Mass and receiving Holy Communion. Kevin Barry was 18 years of age and a medical student in UCD. He was also a member of the IRA, having joined at age 15. He was a member of the H Company, under the command of Captain Seamus Cavanagh. Now, he didn't tell his family this, but he was going to take part in a raid, an ambush on the Monk's Bakery. Uh, Seamus Cavanagh has said, you are not doing that. He said, you have an exam at two o'clock, you have to do your medical resets. You're not doing it, Kevin. And he said, I have to do this. I'm doing this. That's the voice of Shifra O'Donovan, author, historian and Kevin Barry's great-niece. She grew up reading Kevin's letters and statements from the people who knew him best. She remembers a story told by Kevin's brother Michael about a conversation the brothers had while out in the Irish countryside. Michael Barry talks about Kevin just sitting back and going, Ireland, isn't it just beautiful? Is it a country worth living for and dying for? That was early July 1920 and he was dead by the 1st of November 1920. Although Kevin was due to reset a medical exam that afternoon, he insisted on taking part in this ambush. And so, after Mass, he headed for Bolton Street in the north of Dublin, where he joined a party of other IRA volunteers. Their order was to ambush a British army truck as it picked up a delivery of bread from a bakery and capture their weapons. They were meeting early in the morning to have another rerun over how things were going to go. Seamus Kavanagh was going to be hiding at Lenihan's pub with Frank Flood and numerous other volunteers were placed in other places and they were waiting for the arrival of the lorry full of Lancashire Fusilier soldiers um, to arrive by about 11 o'clock but they were about 20 minutes to half an hour late so it all went wrong. But when the British Army truck came, things didn't go to plan. A shot was fired, but it's unknown from where. Possibly it was a warning shot from an undercover soldier in the front. 
Kevin Barry and the rest of the IRA members opened fire. Barry's gun then jammed twice and he dived under the vehicle for cover. The others fled and he was left behind. Everything went silent after quite a lot of shooting and stuff. One 15-year-old British soldier lay dead and two others later died from their injuries. And then he looked around and he realised, oh, I'm on, I'm on my own here. And the, no whistle was blown, so there's nobody. What's going on? And a woman then, Mrs Garrett, shouted, there's a man under the lorry. And then he was found. Kevin Barry was arrested at the scene. Shifra grew up, as she puts it, in the shadow of her great-uncle Kevin Barry. His personal belongings were in the house. They would read his letters. She almost felt like he was there. You know, he was always like a presence in the house. He had that walking stick. And you see this portrait, there's a portrait of him behind me. There was always the sense that he was like a sort of a character looming around. Like we had a lot of letters, a lot of copies of letters of Kevin Barry's um, to different friends and cousins and girlfriends. And, you know, not just at the time he was in prison, but before. So from these, you can really see what kind of a person Kevin Barry was extremely humorous, very witty, absolutely loved dancing, um, loved going to the theatre, loved going to the movies, loved betting, loved flirting, loved girls. Kevin had been arrested and interrogated. He gave his name and address but refused to give the names of those others who were involved in the ambush. Republicans demanded that he be recognised as a prisoner of war. However, the British government would not acknowledge a war and tried him for murder. He was tried in a military court and on October the 20th, he was charged with three counts of murder. And that evening, in his cell in Mountjoy Prison, he was told that he was sentenced to death by hanging. His execution date had been set for November the 1st. De Valera gave quite a fiery speech um, from New York, where he was uh, based at the time, fundraising for the Republic. A speech full of this kind of pathos, a speech that you'd never hear anything like it today. But a young boy, Kevin Barry, will be hanged. Tomorrow a boy, Kevin Barry, they will hang. But Ireland dries her tears over the graves of her martyred ones. They have fought their fight, and they shall reap the victory. In his last few days, Kevin Barry prepared to die, still always joking and light-hearted with those who came to visit him in prison. Another aspect to Kevin that I haven't spoken about yet is how religious he was, how spiritually he was. We can really see this as he came to the gallows, as he prepared for his own death. And the number of priests that he called, one from Belvedere, um, and then the chaplain in Mountjoy, and then other priests as well. There was faith in two things, though, you have to remember. There was definitely had a strong faith as a young Catholic, but he had faith in what he was doing and that that was going to propel the movement forwards. Canon John Waters was the chaplain priest in Mount Joy and was with Kevin when the executioner came into the room. This very tall, elegant man walked into the cell and he thought, I wonder is that the doctor? And then he took Kevin's arms and measured them, measured his wrists for the pinions. And so Canon Waters and Kevin understood that he was preparing him for his execution and that this was John Ellis, the executioner, and he'd arrived. The ropes had arrived a couple of days before. I mean, we can't imagine what it's like to face the gallows. On the day of his execution, a huge crowd gathered outside Mountjoy Prison to pray. In Mountjoy Jail, one Monday morning, 
high upon the gallows tree. Kevin Barry gave his young life for the cause of liberty. The prayers were the focus, really, of the whole thing. I believe there were guards who were standing um, around who were in tears. Um, he seemed to have moved um, a lot of people. Shoot me light, an Irish soldier. Do not hang me like a dog. And it was a hanging that had no, there was no hiccup. It was very quick. The execution of Kevin Barry drew worldwide attention and condemnation, including from the US government and the Vatican. He did take a life, that is true, but he also gave his own life. He knew what he was heading into. He didn't choose to escape. He didn't choose and push for people to get him a reprieve. He chose not to give the names of his comrades it's about the history of our country. It's about our heritage. I think that um, there's a slight amnesia in this country. That was a war fought by an army who were mandated by a democratic government, who were voted democratically in. This is the foundation of our state. And if you choose and decide to not commemorate Kevin Barry, not commemorate you know, Michael Collins, not commemorate anybody. So if you choose not to, you're really choosing to just turn a blind eye to those people who actually did put their lives on the line to make it possible for us to have a Republic of Ireland. For the cause he proudly cherished This sad parting had to be Then to this Walk softly smiling that old might be A beautiful rendition there of the song Kevin Barry by the West Clare singer-songwriter PJ Murray, ending that report from Colin Flynn on the young Republican's life, death and legacy. Colin was talking to Schaefer O'Donovan. Schaefer's book is called Yours Till Hell Freezes, a memoir of Kevin Barry, and it's published by Curragh Books. I'm joined now by Union O'Halpin, Professor of Contemporary Irish History at Trinity College Dublin. Union is also a close relative, a grandnephew of Kevin Barry, and in his new book, Kevin Barry, an Irish Rebel in Life and Death, he explores the lasting legacy of having a martyr in the family. Eunan, yours is a book about Kevin Barry, obviously, but it's also a book about memory and about family memory. And an important figure in the book is your maternal grandmother, Kathleen Barry Maloney, Kevin's older sister. Tell us a little bit about somebody who comes across uh, in the book as a very formidable woman indeed. Well, my grandmother, Kathy or Kitby Barry, uh, was certainly a very formidable woman. Uh, she was extremely able. Uh, one of the ironies of her, if you like, curating of Kevin's memory was that it meant that she'd rather downplayed her own uh, really pretty extraordinary career in the independence movement, both during the War of Independence, but particularly uh, before and during and even after the Civil War. She was the General Secretary of the Prisoners' Dependence Fund for two years. She was in America with Markovich. She was in Australia with Nurse Kearns. 
She was very close to de Valera during the Civil War and acted as his kind of personal link with Liam Lynch. She was one of the last people to see Lynch and to talk about the prospects for the anti-treatyites in the Civil War. And really all of this I, I've discovered almost all after her death in any detail because really all she focused on in terms of passing on the story to her grandchildren, and my mum Mary was the only one of her family who had children, was Kevin. And she never mentioned, so far as I know, that her husband, my grandfather, Jim, that his brother Paddy had been killed in Tip in, in May 1921. She never mentioned that her father-in-law, PJ Maloney, was a member of the first and second Doyle, had been on hunger strike, I think, three times in two years, and uh, had his home and premises burnt down in November 1920. It was all about Kevin. It's amazing. So when she gives a Bureau of Military History statement, essentially she is somebody who should have been giving that statement very much in her own right and not just to talk about her brother. Oh, I think so very much. And she does say in a later letter to Oscar Trainer, who was then Minister for Defence, but who at the outbreak of the Civil War was her commanding officer in Dublin when she was uh, in the Hammam Hotel with the anti-treaty leadership just after the Four Courts fight. So she writes to Trainer, with whom she was also at war in various ways, but she writes in very personal terms saying how much she regretted that she hadn't written down uh, her own experiences in the Civil War uh, for the benefit of her grandchildren. She did reflect on the fact that Kevin was the person whose amazing story she had uh, solely curated, if you like, to the exclusion of the rest of her family, her, her extended family and so on, and what they experienced, what they suffered. This isn't to knock Kevin, but it is to say it shows you how selective in any family there's typically somebody who's regarded as the keeper of memory, but he or she very often is highly selective in what they remember and in who they remember. You write in your book that your grandmother's witness statement to the Bureau of Military History has become the template and in a way also a straitjacket for all subsequent writers. Do you think that witness statement hamstrings future historians when it comes to writing about Kevin Barry and um, could it in any way have hamstrung you? Well, well, I mean, I think you, any Bureau of Military History statement, like any memoir or like any pension claim, you have to take them, not exactly with a dose of salt, but you have to say this is necessarily a partial view. And certainly my grandmother saw herself as laying down the word of God uh, on the Mount to Moses, uh, as far as she was concerned. But in fact, there's some minor inconsistencies with, with different accounts she gives at different times of aspects of Kevin's story. So even she wasn't uh, always perfectly consistent. But it is, it is an amazingly powerful statement. It's really well written. Uh, it's very coherent. It's very well put together. But it does, um, in places, it's hard to figure out how exactly the family, to what extent they might have felt some pressure from history upon them because of the way in which they acceded to Kevin's uh, desire not to be legally represented. But also in the case of Kevin, we know from his court-martial records that he actually did initially, for whatever reason, take part in the preliminaries to his court-martial. That's to say, listening to be witnesses giving a, a sworn depositions, and he actually questioned some of them. So there is that, why did he do that? There is some question there. There's also a lot of questions about brigade headquarters, if you like, and IRA headquarters as the consistency of their position, because they ordered Kevin to accept a legal defence and so on. And yet they, in effect, backed off on that without withdrawing the order. So it becomes very difficult and problematic. But if you think of what Cathy Barry had to do, along with her, particularly with her sister Elgin, with her mother Mary and with her brother Mick, the older members of the family to have have a, almost almost a month in which they almost knew for certain their brother 
was liable, liable to be executed. And uh, they knew of his wish at a certain point that he shouldn't be legally defended. And it must have been just agonising for them. And it, in some ways it traumatised the family, I think, for decades to come. Let's just talk a little bit about uh, Kevin Barry himself, the man, the boy, which whichever you want to describe him. Kevin Barry was born in Dublin in 1902, but raised in Carlow until the time that he went to secondary school. He went to Belvedere. Was nationalism, republicanism instilled into him at a very young age? I think it was. I, mean, I have to differ from my grandmother in this because she attaches... Kevin's, you know, what we might call his radicalisation nowadays, specifically to the influence of, of the housekeeper in Dublin, who was the daughter of an old Fenian. But I think if you look at Kevin's brother Mick, who spent almost all his life in Carlo, because he was the eldest son, the son of a widow, he was doing the farming from a very early age. He joins the IRA before Kevin. And it was very unusual, if you look at the history of who joins the IRA from 1916 on, the Irish Volunteers, for the eldest son of a widow, who's responsible for the farm and therefore for the entire well-being of the entire family with his six siblings beneath him. And that's a major commitment to make. And Mick made that commitment in 1917. He joined a company in Rathvilly, which, of course, they had no weapons, but at least they trained and, and they prepared for what they saw as the coming fight. And so I think it, there's also some family letters bearing out this argument that it was at least as much in Carlo from a very young age as it was later in Dublin that Kevin developed quite advanced nationalist separatist views. And also his views, uh, when he does come to Dublin and goes to secondary school, it's clear, because there's an awful lot of his schoolboys' essays and things have survived, it's clear that quite early on he's not simply anti-British, but he's very anti-colonial. He's conscious of issues of, of racial inequality. He's conscious of issues of the exploitation of Asia and Africa by Europe and so on. He's, he has a very wide uh, palette, if you like, of political views from a very early age. There are quite a few letters for somebody of such tender years. I mean, he was just short of 19 when he was executed. Quite a few letters survive. There's a lot of correspondence. You've seen a lot of correspondence. What kind of sense do you, do you get from him, from those letters? There are a lot of letters. Uh, I didn't see as many as I would have liked because COVID-19 got in the way of my research towards the end, particularly in relation to Carlo. Uh, my cousin Schieffer has, has touched on them in her, in her own work. The letter was a natural form of communication between people at the time. It was before mobile phones, it was before email or any of that. And so people were in the habit of writing letters very frequently. And this is good. I think Kevin writes, not only writes frequently, he writes very well. He has a sense of humour. He has a sense of, I think, of, of what's important in life. And I think that's reflected in his letters, not only his sort of heroic letters as he's awaiting the hangman, but in any of any of the letters that survive, there are flashes of personality, there's quirks, there's generally a joke or two, and so on. Now, some of his letters about girls are pretty juvenile. But the interesting thing about Kevin, I, I wish it were the same for all of us, is that from early on, he clearly could not just fancy girls and chat them up or whatever, but he could clearly talk to girls as people rather than simply as, as the other, as so many of us did, and perhaps some of us still do. He was very much at his ease with women. And I don't think it's simply because he had had older sisters or whatever. I think it's because uh, just his manner. He seems to be, in the letters towards the end, resigned to his fate and, in a sense, almost quite unsentimental about his fate. I, I think so. I, I think, though, the best account, if you ask me, of his, of his last days, in some ways, is that which is in a British file. It's a report passed on to 
the person who was trying to handle the thing from a sort of a British public relations angle in Dublin Castle. And it's in some ways terrific because it says the prisoner Barry in his last hours, quote, talk mainly sport. He thought seemed to think Britain was some sort of vast industrial complex without any sort of pastoral qualities. And he makes a joke at the end. When it's obvious there's not going to be reprieve, he, he jokes, quote, somewhat cynically, that that only happens in the cinema, which means that, er, that as early as 1920, the cliche of, you know, the governor's call to, to the prison that a condemned man is, is to be uh, granted clemency, that that was part of the stock and trade of, of popular culture, which in itself is interesting. And the last sentence is, he went to his death with callous composure. And what more would you want from your enemies than to be, than your last minutes to be described in that way? And I think it, that acts as a kind of a, it's a relief and a counterweight to the accounts of the, of the chaplains of, of Kevin's last minutes, which naturally focus on his piety and his praying and so on. One of the difficulties with Kevin and why I wasn't interested, interested in him really as a figure until Donald O'Donovan's book in 1989 by its nephew Donald, a very good book came out, which made Kevin for the first time appear human and humorous, uh, sometimes drinking too much and falling off his bike, uh, forever uh, chasing girls. Donald made Kevin sound like a real person, and that was through his access to Kevin's letters. And at the end, Kevin clearly died bravely. Uh, so too, of course, a day later in, in the Punjab, completely unremarked at the time, did uh, Private James Daly uh, from Tyrrell's Pass, who didn't have the benefit, Kevin did, of uh, you know, of a secondary education and of going to university, but who still wrote a very powerful last letter. What's your perspective on the incident that brought about the execution of Kevin Barry? That was the incident that took place, the ambush that took place on the 20th of September uh, 1920 that resulted in the deaths of three British soldiers. It comes across as a, a bit of a tragedy of errors, doesn't it? Well, I think the, the operation at Monk's Bakery was a complete dog's dinner. Uh, and I think that's reflected partly in, in the differing accounts by some of the people uh, who took part. The uh, commanding officer, uh, Seamus Kavanagh, gives one version of the Bureau of Military History. Another member of the party gives, in essence, in the key question of who fired a shot and why, gives a completely uh, contrary version. The aim was not to kill soldiers. The IRA hadn't, hadn't killed any soldiers in Dublin in 1920. By then, the aim was, was to capture their weapons. And Kevin, as one of the participants, was one of the more experienced members of that group, the aim of which was to disarm the soldiers and get their rifles. And it wasn't to, to fire any shots and it wasn't to kill anybody. And um, it was from start to finish, the operation went disastrously wrong. Uh, one of the volunteers fired a shot for whatever reason. And for that reason, it appears the soldiers picked up their weapons and returned fire. And it's uh, out of that and out of the fact that Kevin had been issued with a, a much desired weapon, a Mauser, but which tended to jam if the ammunition was a mixture from different batches. And so he fired, his gun then jammed. He then ducked onto the lorry to clear the jam, got up by his own account, fired again, killed a soldier, got down because the gun jammed again. And then his colleagues dispersed without any signal to withdraw being given. And there's a controversy as to whether there was meant to be a signal or not. And so Kevin was captured, was put in the lorry with the dead soldier and the other two mortally injured. It must have been ghastly uh, uh, moment for him and brought to the North Dublin Union where he was beaten up and threatened before being uh, put into like the military justice system. 
And of course, as has often been pointed out, one of the soldiers who died was actually younger, was only 15 years of age, younger than Kevin, and the other two were of a similar age, 19 and 20 years of age. Now, the, the family on principle decided that they were not going to appeal for a reprieve. They were asked, for example, to write a letter to the king uh, seeking a reprieve. They decided they weren't going to do that. But did they actually believe that an 18-year-old boy was going to be executed by the, uh, by the British authorities, by the Crown. Well, this is one of the problems. I mean, the Lord Chancellor of Ireland, uh, Sir James Campbell, who couldn't be called a raving nationalist, he, he had been involved in the hypothetical Ulster Provisional Government in, in 1913, but Campbell, whose own son had been killed in the war, argues that Kevin should be reprieved because he was only a gormless youth. Uh, he's enthralled to and in fear of uh, older men who made him do what he did and so on. And obviously the family didn't like that, that line of argument. Nor did anybody like the argument which Tim Healy, the barrister, suggested be adopted that of, of insanity. Um, but Kevin was at the end of his first year in university. He was nearly 19. I don't know if you know anybody at the end of their first year of university, but they wouldn't thank you for being called, you know, basically a minor or a boy or a girl as distinct from a young man or a young woman. I think uh, the extreme youth argument falls a bit flat because, uh, I mean, a few weeks afterwards, there's an IRA man of 16 killed in the Kilmichael ambush, Pat DC. There's, you know, soldiers are, are dying, um, had died in the Western Front and elsewhere and were dying in Ireland, were soon to die in Ireland, younger than Kevin, and people were, were taking life and killing who, who were younger than Kevin. I don't think the youth argument, it was strong in the public eye, but I don't think that either the family or certainly Kevin himself would have wished to be, to be reprieved on grounds that he was a sort of a young fellow who didn't know his own head. He was much, he had been involved in a, a serious gunfight with a clergyman in, in Carlo. He threatened to use force in a raid on John Redmond's former home in Havana and so on. He wasn't a child, if you like, in arms at all. Now, there was a discussion recently on Liveland about the commemoration of Kevin Barry, stemming from an Irish Times article by Chris Fitzpatrick, who's a medical doctor. He made the point that Kevin Barry was a medical student and, uh, quote, even in war you expect medics to look after the wounded, not shoot people dead, unquote. What do you think? What's your reaction to that aspect of the commemoration of the execution of, of Kevin Barry? Well, look, I'm, I'm just thinking I'm about half a mile from where, uh, in April 1920, a medical student named Hugo McNeil, who had been in St. Mary's with Kevin for a year and that was then in UCD, he and another member of the squad stepped forward and, and shot a detective as the detective left his house on Pleasant Street off, off Camden Street. Medical students in 1920, whatever they might have done once they qualified, uh, saw themselves first and foremost, those who joined the IRA, as people fighting a legitimate war for their cause and for the freedom of their country. They certainly, if they joined the IRA, they did so in the knowledge that they, they had to be willing uh, to kill and, and to be killed. And that the medical students, as far as I can see, are disproportionately represented as compared with other UCD students in the Dublin IRA, and you see that on Bloody Sunday. A man I knew very well, the brilliant Colonel Dan Bryan, who became head of, head of military intelligence, was an outstanding intelligence officer, but he was, as were in vertical, a medical student, but out on Bloody Sunday. And not in, he wasn't shooting anybody, he was doing surveillance on the streets. There's loads of people who qualify as doctors and dentists, because they're all first meds and vets, who were involved actually not only in, in being on the streets and up Bloody Sunday, but in killing people. And that's, that's what you do in war. And then the, their view was we're at war and this is what we do. 
He was the first Republican to be executed since Roger Casement in 1916, and his death occurred just a week after the death by hunger strike of Terence McSweeney. Is that part of the reason, in addition to his youth, that he became a symbol of Irish martyrdom? Or is it just the song? I think the song is very important. I think also the photographs are extraordinarily important. The first images that the family supplied in about, I think, about 29th or 30th of October, they start appearing in the press nationally and then internationally, are of Kevin in, in a sports jersey, a Belvedere sports jersey. Uh, the three ones where he's in hooped in black and white, the Belvedere hoops he looks like a humorous brave young sportsman a healthy healthy fella you know the implication of team games all that kind of thing he looks like a public schoolboy, if you like the other point is the photographs are all at least a year and a half old because they're taken in in uh, 1917 and 1918 or perhaps one of them the very beginning of 1919 so of course he looks young in the photographs because he was he was 16 and 17 when they were taken so there is that and uh he also, I think he was a photogenic person and the photographs make him, you can see he's got an interesting face, quite a striking figure, quite a handsome boy in the photographs and quite a handsome young man by the time of his death. I think that, so the images are terribly important and have remained so. And it's ironic, the GAA, in some ways it's been said, the irony of naming a club after him when, when Kevin was a rugby player. But in fact, in one of the photographs, they just took the detail of his head and shoulders. But in fact, he's holding a hurley. He was a member of the Belvedere, experimental Belvedere hurling team, uh, which got absolutely hammered on their first outing, perhaps their only outing. Um, finally, to go back to your grandmother's witness statement, there's a raft of correspondence at the end where she has threatened legal action against Oscar Trainer, Oscar Trainer, who um, was to have been involved, who, who takes over the Dublin Brigade from Clancy and was to have been involved in a rescue attempt. And there is a monumental row in 1949. Just tell us a little bit about what happens there, because that's very much part of the curation, I think, of the memory of Kevin Barry. Yeah, my grandmother was very angry uh, by an article which uh, Oscar Trainer wrote, I think, in the Irish press, which appeared to suggest that the family had vetoed a final effort to rescue Kevin. And she called on, she threatened the Irish press and she threatened Trainer personally with legal action. What's interesting in, in the material which she submits in relation to this is that while the, the press clarified what Trainer meant, and Trainer did, but he didn't back down. And in his own pure military history statement, he he effectively says the same thing, which isn't what Kitsby was accusing him of that the family had absolutely forbidden it. But he does say that that Mrs. Barry, Kevin's mother, who I learned about my great grandmother really for the for her first time, is a very interesting, uh, humorous, quiet but really strong and, and humane woman, that she objected to the idea of a rescue where inevitably people would be killed, not just in the prison, but probably uh, amongst the crowds waiting outside. And trainer, that remained Trainer's position, that the family had said, no, we can't do this because there'll be a bloodbath. Kitby had had, was slightly misreading, I think, what Trainer had said. But he didn't back down. Indeed, the Irish press refused to print the apology which had been framed by Mr. O'Hui, who was the solicitor for your grandmother at the time. The book is called Kevin Barry, An Irish Rebel in Life and Death. It's published by Marion Press. The author is Eunan O'Halpin. Eunan, many thanks for joining us this evening. Thank you very much, Miles. After the break, we'll hear about the history of the tenters in Dublin 8, the first housing development in a newly independent Ireland. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. 
Amid the violence and trauma that accompanied the outbreak of the Civil War in 1922, there were some positives to be found. One example is the Irish Free State's first social housing development scheme, the Tenters, which was built that year right in the heart of Dublin City. So, while we prepare to face the difficulties in commemorating the Irish Civil War, there will be no such dilemmas, thankfully, for the residents of the Tenters, who are just about to launch their programme of centenary events. Joining me this evening to tell us more about the history of the Tenters housing scheme is genealogist and Tenters resident Maria O'Reilly. Maria, you're very welcome indeed to the History Show. Thanks, Miles. Thank you. Firstly, where does that name come from, the Tenters? So the Tenter's name uh, used today for the area uh, seems to have been born unofficially by a way of reference to the Tenter fields that the lands were previously used for. That would have been around the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. The Tenter fields themselves were laid out on lands known as Fairbrothers fields, which in turn reflects the fact that they were owned at one time by the Fairbrother family. So the Tenters themselves were huge, big wooden structures, whereby lengths of locally produced cloth were stretched out on hooks to dry in the open air. So have you ever heard the term on tenter hooks? Yeah, I was just so going to ask you, is that where it comes from? That's exactly where it comes from. So to be on tenter hooks means to feel tension, like the cloth that would have been stretched out on those tenter hooks. And how big was this area? So the area itself would be 22 acres in size. And if you visualise that area, it would be the same size as St. Stephen's Green Park. Originally, the area was supposed to be quite high density, up to 800 units. But by the time they completed, they had substantially reduced the density and they were left with 400 two-storey houses or cottages. And was this to offer more public space or to give people a back garden, for example? Yeah. So what they did by reducing the density was reduce the houses Um, which released more land. So each house had a front garden and they had a back garden. They also left land aside, quite a substantial site, which in about six years after all the houses were were completed, that actually went and was built um, as a national school for the young boys of the new community. Yeah. So how did the housing scheme then come about? Uh, surely the new government, the Comunagoyle Gael government, didn't just decide to build the development as soon as we had our own government, especially when they were busy fighting a civil war. They probably had a bit more on their minds. No, no, Miles, they didn't. Um, so this housing development uh, was first proposed um, in 1912. So it took about 12 years from the idea to the completion of all the houses. So what I did was I looked at a timeline and I used minutes and report books of the Corporation of Dublin as my reference. And while it was proposed in 1912, it actually didn't get the finance secured until 1916. So that was four years later. And when you take into account the start of the First World War and also 1916, um, it started 1922 was the first brick to be laid and uh, it took two further years then to complete the whole project. So at least some of this development, the first housing development built by the new Irish government, was actually built with British money. Absolutely. While it started off being built with British money that had already been approved, the original budget was added to um, during the construction phase. So as far as I can tell, it went over budget for a variety of reasons. But the new free state government wasn't going to let the small matter of a budget, uh, which was agreed under British rule, um, they weren't going to let that halt works. So certainly for reasons for the overspend was due to their vision for what the housing scheme represented. 
This was the first tenant purchase housing scheme to be built under the new Irish government for the working class families of Dublin. It was a chance to showcase what the new free state could do for the people of Ireland. Therefore, the constraints of budget seemed to be of less importance as the project went on. And the materials and the labour were stipulated. They had to be as local as the contractors could get. So materials such as Wicklow granite for the windowsills and Dolphins Barn brick from nearby Dublin Brick Company was used too. Now, sadly, in this country, we have become used to the concept of the of the brown envelope and <laughs> of corruption, essentially. And there was an element of that associated with the purchase of the, yeah. the land, uh, which became controversial eventually. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I uncovered a couple of controversies and it's always very exciting when you're, you're reading through stuff and then, you, you know, you get to understand what's going on. So the first controversy came to light before even one brick was laid. So we know the lands were owned by a member of the Fairbrother family, you know, hence the Fairbrother Fields name. In fact, all along the, fa- the planning phase and beyond, uh, this housing scheme was known officially as the Fairbrothers Fields housing scheme. But it is a mistaken assumption uh, to believe that the Fairbrother family were the landowners immediately prior to the acquisition of the site. At that time, the lands were in fact owned by an alderman, Patrick Corrigan. His identity as the owner wasn't noted at the time. And this probably was because of the Fairbrother Fields name connection. And he was Um, a slum landlord, wasn't he? He, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's been written that he was uh, one of the biggest slum landlords in Dublin of the time. And, And he received... £10,000 for the site of 22 acres. But what happened then was within a very short time, uh, lands twice the size, so over 40 acres of land in Colester, were bought by the Dublin Corporation for 3500 And it was this discrepancy in the value of the land that prompted the discovery of who the previous owner of Fairbrothers Field site was. That then led on to the passing of a motion in 1920, on the 13th of September, uh, requiring all corporation members or officials to declare if they had an interest in any property which was either insanitary or being considered for acquisition by the corporation. That then followed by a report that was published in 1923 and it was found that actually the then Lord Mayor Lawrence O'Neill and two other officials were recorded as registered owners of a number of tenement buildings. Lawrence O'Neill, of course, a name associated with the uh, conscription crisis uh, very much. And who were the houses built for? Were they built for local working class families? They were. Dublin at the time um, was going through a housing crisis. So following the Church Street tenement collapse, the corporation found themselves reviewing the dire need for safe housing for the working class of the city. Um, The housing conditions for this section of Dublin's community was found to be unacceptable and unsanitary. So Alderman Thomas Kelly, chairman of the housing committee at the time, is quoted as saying that good housing was a principal weapon in fighting tuberculosis, which was rampant in the city. The Fairbrothers Field Housing Scheme was specifically built for the working class uh, of Dublin. There was a selection process for the allocation of the houses and they had to follow some criteria. Um, The family had to be living within Dublin City, the head of the household had to be in employment and there had to be a minimum of three children within the family. It was a pretty radical scheme, but one of the most radical elements of the scheme was that the tenants could eventually buy their own houses. Yeah. I would certainly think so. I mean, it must have been absolutely fantastic. When you think about who these houses were being built for and the time that was in it, I've studied the first list of applicants. So of the 25 applicants um, for the first 25 houses to be completed, there was only one that was female, and I I presume she was a widow. The head of each family was in um, low-paid employment, including the woman, 
and four of them working within Dublin Corporation. The rest were in various skilled and unskilled jobs. Um, but all of them were in rented accommodation and the majority in tenements with little chance of ever owning their own home. So for this to come about, can you imagine the, the, the sense of pride and place that each person would have felt when they were informed that they were successful in applying? So personally, I think, and I've said it before, that it would have been the equivalent today of winning the lotto. Um, they were also encouraged and helped along, you know, to keep up payments and not go into arrears. Um, by the very fact that um, on Wednesdays, and my own mum remembers running into, up to the rent office on Wednesdays with the rent, so that there was no excuse and, and rent could be collected within the very area that you were living. And I gather that the rents were not standardised. There weren't uniform rents. It depended on your income. Yeah, the income coming into the household. So that didn't just mean the main head of household's income. If they had children that were of working age or anybody actually living in the house, they could have a lodger. It was all of that income coming into the house that would have been calculated um, as to what rent they would pay each week. What about the design of the houses? Did they all look exactly alike? Uh, no, no. And actually, it was really, really um, lovely to see the different... And I, I was very, very aware of growing up of the different designs. Um, I was always very interested in architecture. So I think the architects and planners had really great fun with this design. Uh, the layout and style of development was very different from its predecessors. To my eyes, it's, it's like something of a dolly mixture of ideas and styles. <laughs> uh, it, it really, you know, when you look around and, and there's all different angles and, and, you know, people come in around the tenters area and they get this day's look about them because it can be a bit of a maze. But I know there was, you know, there was mistakes with housing before. They'd seen the tenement living. And, and eventually, over the, the 12 years, there was a design um, settled on. And it was loosely based on the English town planner, um, a guy by the name of Raymond Unwin. And he had proposed um, a garden suburb idea, and that was accepted. So this idea was later um, perfected and, and later used in the Merino housing scheme. But the Tenters area or the Fairbrothers Fields housing scheme, it was the ideal situation to try out different designs and ideas. Um, it was state of the art at the time. and The houses themselves were fantastic. The Corporation of Dublin certainly seized the chance to showcase what they could do for the people of the new free state. And that, again, is where the budget went um, and incorporated within the development you had different frontages and angles. You had pebble dashing, a mix of different brick finishes, all made locally. I've seen the when the tender went out for one million bricks was given um, to the Dublin Brick Company, and they were just located um, up here on Drimna around Dolphins Barn area. Um, and then very soon after that, another order went out for three million more to complete the project. Um, they all had five rooms. And one of them was deemed necessary to be a parlour. And that would have seemed to everybody, you know, just a really unnecessary luxury for that area. But it was noted that it was psychologically important to provide this good room, as some people would call the parlour. Um, and really, really good foresight on behalf of the city planners and architects of the time. They, they gave just that little bit extra. Every house had their own front doors. We were saying before, their back garden, a front garden. A lot of them used the back gardens as uh, allotments and grew fruit and vegetables, while the front gardens were bursting at the seams um, with flowers. Uh, it was just fantastic, a fantastic area. 
You've mentioned the names of a few streets. Uh, they're very interesting, and you can talk about uh, some of those in a moment. But it, it was yeah. not always thus, not at the very beginning. It's a bit confusing, no. isn't it? Yeah, no. And my mom has um, a story about, um, so her grandmother brought her up in, in the house in the tenters. And her grandmother was from Wicklow. And she used to get lost every time she'd come home from nearby Meat Street, you know, um, because it was like a maze. So each of the roads were, were named Road A, B, C, D, you know, and on. Um, and it wasn't until all of the houses were completed that the names actually were proposed. And the streets, the roads were, were called after Irish poets, I think, in the main, weren't they? Or historians? Yeah, well, well, actually, um, probably more historians. Um, that, and that's where I first really had a light bulb moment about the area where I've always known and, and grown up. I was studying in UCD for my certificate in Irish genealogy and I started to recognise the names of the Irish historians. They were on my, my book list, you know, and um, they were the same as the streets I grew up. So we had the likes of O'Curry and O'Donovan and Geoffrey Keating and Petrie and Gilbert. And every time I'd hear the name, you know, I was a mature student um, I wasn't very cool. Uh, and every time I'd hear one of those names, I'd go, oh, my God, that, that's a road where I live. That's, a, you know, where I live. And actually, my tutor, Sean Murphy, was very good and he picked up my my excitement you know um and he encouraged me to make a short presentation to my class on the topic of the tenters um and something i'll be internally grateful to him for because that really was the start of my interest in local history so yeah there was poets um historians it was they were all irish figures um and again it was really a, a sign of, of what the new free state wanted for the people they were there was there was other um, names like O'Carroll and you know there was, there was poets and musicians um, as well and of course then we have our famous Oscar Square um, which is a park or playground. It's named after Oscar, um, son of Oisin, who was one of the leaders of the Fianna. Great foresight as well that they provided what they called a playground because they knew it was always going to be young families coming in, so therefore the children would have needed somewhere to just literally run around and and, and go wild, you know, fabulous place. Your own family, how far back do you go? Does your family go? Were you amongst the original inhabitants, the, the original tenants? Yeah, yeah. So my family um, on both sides. So my dad's family um, moved into the area uh, in the mid-30s. So they didn't move into a brand new um, uh, house. He also, there was quite a few uh, um, young children in the family. So his father brought the children with him um, to live in, in the house. That's that He fulfilled those, that criteria. But actually, my, my paternal grandparents were involved in weaving um, around the same area, around Newmarket. And then on, on his father's side, his people were, were only from around New, New Street, which is only about five minutes away. So we were always from around that area on my father's side. And his sister, my aunt Kathleen, still lives in the same house in the tenters today. Um, on my mother's side, so my mother's grandparents were among the founding families from the very start. They moved into a brand new house when my um, my mum's dad, my grandfather, was 14 years old. And my great-grandmother, his mother, uh, was originally from County Wicklow. And, and she was so um, fortunate to get a house that they had the orientation of looking up to what she called... Um, the Wicklow Mountains, you know, we used to call them the Dublin Mountains, but <laughs> she always said the Wicklow, no, no, they're the Wicklow Mountains, because that was a link to her home place and her birthplace. And it was so lovely. And I've, I've always known that, that that story has always, you know, traveled through and we can still see them today. Um, so 
My mom um, was brought to that house when she was age three, when her own mother died, um, along with her three brothers. Um, my grandfather brought her there. Uh, hence, my, my great grandmother brought her up and she still lives there today. So I was born to that house and I didn't move too far away either. So I'm about 50 yards away from my mom. <laughs> Now, I think in terms of the centenary, it's hard to know where you actually fix a centenary. 2022, I think, was the turning of the first sod. But as you said, the process really begins 10 years earlier. So you're not waiting until 2022. You're getting yeah. you're getting started straight away. I know you've planned a series of events for when the pandemic restrictions ease up. But in the meantime, there will be a lot of online content. You're planning, for example, a virtual photographic exhibition on your Facebook page featuring the collection of Tenter's resident and Dublin Corporation photographer Billy Mooney. But you're also looking for former Tenters to get in touch. Absolutely. Um, We would envisage some type of a gathering and I think the timing wise for 2022 would probably come you know very welcome um idea um insofar as if like the diaspora of of people who have lived um within the fairbrothers fields dash tenters area um and i must just note at this stage while the fairbrother fields area is is what we're celebrating the centenary the tenters area you know has has grown outwards so it encompasses a lot of streets around and, and and we're all you know under the one umbrella so hopefully if they can get in touch with us um, and keep an eye on our Facebook page. And the yeah. face, Facebook page is Tenters100. Tenters100. And we have an email address as well, which is tenters.100 at gmail.com. So we're keeping the theme together, uh, Tenters100, just to try and make it as easy as p- possible for people to get in touch. Well, thank you very much for talking to us, although 2022 obviously is going to be dominated by events commemorating the Irish Civil War, some of them, I would say, quite difficult events. There'll be something very positive to commemorate, and that's the building of the Tenters. Absolutely. A, yeah, a community that's still going strong today, and we will we'll, we'll put those contact details you mentioned on our website. Fantastic. Maria, again, many thanks for joining us this evening, and uh, the very, very best of luck with those uh, wonderful celebrations. Thanks, Miles. Thanks so much. That's all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.